that you were not born in America. You were born in, in a country over in Africa or in Europe. And the fact that surrounding your coming to America was that, that your parents were actually king and queen of a little country in that continent. And when you were just a baby, some rebels came in, overthrew, in fact, killed them. They killed them. And some very brave people risked their lives to save your life. They brought you over here and it's been kept hidden for you really as much for your safety as anything else. But things have changed now. And in one year, you are going to be taken back to your, to your country if you agree to this. And you will become the rightful heir to the throne. You are the rightful heir to the throne. You will become king or queen of this country. And this resonates with you. It's like, it's like in your heart you say, this is right. I, I believe this is true. Because they've convinced you. And you've got a choice to make. What are you going to do? You're not who you thought you were. I mean, you were born somebody different than you always thought you were. You're a typical American teenager, but suddenly everything has changed. You're really not an American. You belong to this other country. And not only that, you belong to the people of that country. Now, let me ask you a question. Do you think the knowledge of your heritage will change the way you live? I mean, will you say... Hey, that's cool. And then just go back to living the same way that you've always lived. Well, if it's a Disney movie, yeah, yeah, you'll do that. If it's, and you'll teach your, your teachers a thing or two about life, you know. And teenagers rule the world in the Disney world. They rule the banks in the Disney world, I can tell you that. But no, it's not, in real life, that's not what's going to happen. It changes everything about the way you live. Just the knowledge of who you are. And that's what our text is going to do for us today. It's going to tell us who we are in Jesus. The question is, is it going to change how we live? Now, we've already come to this a time or two in First Peter where we bumped up against this. But i got to tell you, the passage that we'll be reading this morning is not only foundational to understanding the book of First Peter, it's foundational to understanding the entire Christian life. All of the New Testament, who we are in Jesus ought to make a difference in the way that we live our lives. Because of our relationship with Him, we're different than we were before. Just yesterday, I didn't know Jesus. Today, I know Him. Everything changes. We see life through different eyes. And when we're related to Jesus, the more we know about who we are, God's chosen royal people, the more it should impact how we live. Our text this morning is 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 8. I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. If you would, please stand as we read Scripture together. As you come to Him, a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves... Like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. 
But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You did not receive mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Now, before we pray, let me just encourage you to Ask God during this prayer to allow your mind to be as engaged with His Word as it could possibly be. I, I never mind hearing a preacher just preach and just give knowledge. And, and, and Because you know what? The application is always there in Scripture. This is going to be a lot more about knowledge today than it is application. Someone asked me recently, what are some of your favorite texts to, that you've enjoyed preaching from through the years? And you know what my answer is? Everything I preach, because every time I get into the word, every time I get into the word, it is just so rich. I got to tell you, this is one of the two or three toughest sermons I've ever wrestled with or text that I've ever wrestled with since I've been here in 11 years. But it is rich, rich with wonderful truth. And we're going a little bit deep today. And some of the stuff's going to be uncomfortable for some of us. It's just it just is. But that's the way. Truth is, sometimes it's not always comfortable, but it's always best to know and embrace and obey truth as we find it. So as we pray, ask God to do, let the Spirit of God work in your heart through His Word today. Our Father, as we said last week, Your your Word and, and, and Spirit are practically inseparable. Your Your Spirit today longs to teach us about you. And, and Lord, as we learn about you, it makes a huge difference in our life and the way that we live life, the way that we interact with those who don't know you. And glory is brought to you. So, Father, help us to be willing to think deeply about the truths that are found in this text. And then change us. And, Lord, whenever we say change us, our prayer is to make us more like Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Thanks and be seated. Well, we learned last week that Scripture is alive. The truth in Scripture goes far beyond the words on the page. Now, I'm, I, I recognize that that statement could be dangerous in the wrong hands. When, this, when you say Scripture goes deeper than the words on the page, I don't mean that God is going to give you some mystical knowledge that He, that he gives nobody else. But what I'm saying is the truth that is there that we read is so much deeper than most of us will ever appreciate. In fact, ab absolutely there's no one person in the world that's ever going to plumb the depths of this Word. W what I'm encouraging us to do, though, is to read the Word carefully. When we read it in monotone, now I'm not talking about personality, but when we just look at the Word and we read this Word like this and then we just go on, we miss so much. I'm not encouraging you to be expressive. Some of you, if you got up here and preached, you would never use your hands like I use my hands. You wouldn't do that because it's not your personality. And I'm not saying read the Word like that, but I am saying be attentive as you read the Word. Be attentive because God has got so much there that we'll miss if we're just reading it casually. 
as we go back and look at this text, we'll see a progression that centers around one thought. Jesus. In fact, Scripture always does that. It leads us to think about Jesus. Now, as I told you, this was a tough text for me. I wrestled with it all week. I was, I was wanting to structure it in such a way, organize and structure it in such a way that it would increase our understanding so that then we could make application. It seemed best to me, though, by the end of the week, by what I hope was the leadership of the Holy Spirit, uh, the Holy Spirit, not by the end of the week, but just by the end of my, my time in thinking about that, for us to just go through and try to understand this progression that God has here. What a novel idea. Read it as it is written. You know, that God had a, a plan when he wrote it in a particular way. So let's, let's do that. We'll begin in verse 4 and we'll see what Peter is saying. And, and as we go through this, it's not intended as an intellectual academic exercise just so that we can understand this. There's a progression, there's a point that he's making. And it's leading to Jesus being seen through our lives so that God might be glorified. Before we begin, though, I'm going to tell you that on the screen today, there's going to be a lot on the screen that I'm not going to say. Some verses uh, where Peter is referring back to Old Testament passages. But when you read a New Testament uh, verse that is really a quotation of the Old Testament, uh, and you look back where it was written in Deuteronomy or Isaiah or somewhere, and you, you might say, you know, that's not the same thing. What, what's going on here? Actually, the New Testament writers are almost always quoting the Septuagint, which was the Greek translation of the new uh, of the Old Testament, and the Septuagint was widely dispersed and widely read all over the Roman Empire, not just in Israel, but all over the Roman Empire. Which is one of the reasons that um, last week, as we Sean and I were talking, Peter expected his readers to have some knowledge of the Old Testament. It was the Septuagint with which they were familiar. They read it in the Greek. Almost all of his readers would have read the Old Testament. Even the Jewish readers, a lot of times, wrote read the Old Testament. In the Greek. So some of these um, verses today are direct quotes of Old Testament passages, although they may seem a little different when you go back and read a translation that comes from the Hebrew text rather than the, the Greek text. And some of them are just illusions. It's clear what Peter has in mind. It's not a specific quoting, but it's very obvious. So I've got those up there, and if you want to do further study, then jot them down. Also, there'll be a couple of lists that would be very good for you to think through and, and work through, but you can't. I'm not going to talk about it, at least one of them, and it, there won't be much time, so if you're going to write, write them quickly. Some of it would be really good to do uh, for devotions. You'll recall last week in, in 1 Peter 2, verses 1 to 3, that we were encouraged to seek after Jesus as an infant craves milk. And then in verse 3, he says, you have tasted, you've tasted that the Lord is good. And now, in verse 4, he's saying, so let's go further than that. We're going to find out more about Jesus. Who is he? He's a living stone. Now, now let's just stop right there. A living stone. What would happen if somebody came up to you and said, hey, what's going on? What's new in your life? And you said, hey, I got a rock, and it's alive. <laughs> I mean, they're going to wait for a punchline, and when the punchline never comes, they're going to be saying, we got a problem. Houston, we, Houston, we have a problem. We, we need this guy, again, it's like the earlier, needs help. We don't tend to think of rocks as being alive. Rocks don't grow. Moss grows on rocks. In fact, rocks crack, and, 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 and they deteriorate. They erode. 
They're not living entities. So what is Peter saying when he's talking about a living stone? That, that gets people's attention. Well, it helps to know that Peter is contrasting Jesus with the literal stones that made up the temple in Jerusalem. The temple worship was very much in, in play in that day. People were still offering sacrifices at the temple. And, and there's so much more going on in Peter's analogy than we have time to explore. But think about it. I mean, those who worship God at the temple, almost everybody who had worshiped God at the temple had been made aware that Jesus was the fulfillment of the prophecies and the sac- all the, all the sacrificial system had been pointing to Jesus Christ. And, and there were people who were saying, hey, guess what? Jesus has come. We don't need this anymore. So those who chose to continue worshiping at the temple had made their choice. And in so doing, they were rejecting Jesus. But Jesus, who rejected by those who preferred the old ways of sacrifice and law, the stones of the temple, this Jesus was highly exalted by God as his precious and chosen stone. Now, when Peter chose the stone imagery to point to Jesus, he used well-established truth from the Old Testament. And in fact, Jesus had time and again said, I'm that cornerstone. I am the one that the Old Testament writers were pointing to. In verse 5, Peter calls us living stones built up as a spiritual house. Now, two different houses were being considered, one built by human hands, one built by God. The one that was, is being built by God is, is, consists of all of those who have followed Jesus, who have said, my trust and my hope for salvation, my hope for this life, for anything, is in Jesus. He's shaping us to be His church. A building of living stones that point to the cornerstone. Jesus. We're being built into a holy priesthood also in this new temple. Now, this designation is going to be seen again in this text. And since this is a spiritual house, we can be at the same time both stones in this structure and also priests who are serving in the house. We are priests who are called to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. Every New Testament believer is a priest. Everybody who believes in Jesus is a priest. I've had a lot of people ask me, are you a priest? They call Sometimes they... They call me Father, which I sort of chuckle at, you know. Uh, Father Brad? No. Uh, that's, that's not generally what I go by. Uh, but you know what? It's not just, it's not me. It's all believers in the New Testament. We're all priests in God's service. And we're called to offer spiritual sacrifices. Not the old animal sacrifices, but spiritual sacrifices. The New Testament defines at various places our responsibilities for sacrifice. They are as follows. It would be good. Look, if you just write these verses down and go back sometime and, and, and look at the responsibilities we have. If you've got a pen, it would really be worth your while to look at these. Living, we're called to be living, uh, give a, make a living sacrifice of our bodies to God for service. Romans 12, 1 and 2. We're also called to offer sacrifices of praise to God. Hebrews thirteen fifteen. We're called to voluntary acts of self-dedication. Philippians two seventeen and Ephesians 5, 1 to 2. 
We're called to a sacrifice of good deeds. Sometimes good deeds are quite a sacrifice, aren't they? Hebrews 13, 16. And we're called to sacrifice material possessions, a sacrifice of material possessions. Philippians 4, 18 and Hebrews 13, 16. KJ talked about this Wednesday. We had a session where many of us had been fasting that day and we came together and and we just offered ourselves to God. And we talked about the need for us as a church body to offer our material possessions here because this is a thing that God is doing. See, it's not, it's not we're saying, hey, pay the preacher, pay the staff, pay, pay the missionaries. That seems more noble somehow than paying the staff, but, but none, but, but that's not it. It's, look, we're building a building here. God is doing the building and He's called us as priests to offer the sacrifice of our lives, our very lives and all that we have to Him and all belongs to Him anyway, right? Boy, we talk, we talk about that. We don't believe it though. As priest, we're to make sacrifices. And God is pleased with the kinds of sacrifices that are required in the New Testament when we are willing to make them. And since we're priests, sacrifice, making sacrifices is our duty. The Levites in the Old Testament really didn't have a choice. That's what they were called to do. That was their job. That was their responsibility. They couldn't go out and be anything they wanted to be, as we can in America. They worked in there, but you know what? It wasn't drudgery. It was quite an honor to be the one that that served the living God in His temple. And I'm sure a lot of them walked with their heads held high, thinking, God chose me to be a priest. That is an awesome thing. He chose my family to be a priest. Well, He's chosen us as priests. And it is a delight, it is a privilege to sacrifice and make our sacrifices to Him. Well, verses 6 to 8 incorporate all three places in the Old Testament where Jesus was prophesied as the stone that was rejected by the builders but became the cornerstone of God's redemptive plan and also the foundation and anchor of God's church. That's who Jesus is. For those who believe, there is honor. Those who don't believe try to bring shame upon those who do believe. We'll talk about that more fully in just a moment. But but there is no shame in following Jesus. Even if we are maligned and persecuted by our neighbors and our, our countrymen. Not so much so here as it is in other places, but we all suffer for our faith in Jesus. If it's a serious faith, people are going to think we're a little nuts. You know, and but but that's okay. Those who persecute followers of Jesus have been offended by the message of the cross and thus they have stumbled over the truth. That's what that rock of offense is. They've come to Jesus and and they've tripped, they've stubbed their toe on it. And they say, I can't buy this, I don't believe this. And they stumble, they're offended. And by the way, I say this every so often, but... Make sure when you're sharing Jesus with other people that it's the message of the cross that's the offense, not you. Make sure it's not your life that is the offense. We can't help it if people don't like the message of Jesus. We've got to tell it anyway. I mean, that's our, that's our call. That's our responsibility. But we certainly don't have to add to the problem by being a jerk. You know, or being arrogant about the truth that is so important to us. 
Well, why is it that people stumble over the truth? We have the disturbing explanation at the end of verse 8. They chose to disobey the word as they were destined to do. Now, what are you going to do with that? You don't change your destiny. You just, you know, people say, change your destiny. How do you do that? I mean, if you're destined for something, how do you do that? Now, it might be appropriate to say, Luke, fulfill your destiny. But it's not appropriate to say, Luke, change your destiny. My voice is too high to try to do that, James Earl Jones. I don't know. That was a bad move. But they were destined to disobey the gospel. That's troubling, isn't it? Well, some people would say, here's what you do with it. Take it as it reads. God predestined some to heaven, some to hell. And by the way, that word destined really is in the predestined, predestination family in the Greek. It's, it's, it, it leans in that direction. Well, some would say that. Others would say, wait, 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 wait. Scripture is clear. James 1 says God never causes people to sin. And the worst sin, the one that will really, that ultimately condemns you hell is disobeying the gospel, not believing the gospel. So God's not the author of that. Well, indeed, Scripture is quite clear that God is never the author of sin. Does He, though, predestinate people to disobey the Word? Well, I don't know that I'm going to answer this as fully as you would like for it to be, but there are some things that we need to think about, and it, and it may move us in a direction. We know that all are born moving away from God, and that eternal condemnation is our default position. See, a lot of people think, it, 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 I'm born okay with God, and as long as I don't screw it up too badly, I'm, I'll be okay. As long as I don't mess up too badly, and I don't do this and this and this. How many times do you hear people when say, do you know the Lord? Well, hey, I'm, you know, are you sure you're going to heaven? Well, hey, I'm not a murderer. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not, in, you know, all these things. And they sort of, ha- they, they're weighing themselves against other people. But John 3.18 says, all who believe in him are not condemned, believe in Jesus. But those who do not believe in him are condemned already. See, the default position is condemnation. We are born walking away from God. We're already, God is this way facing us. But when we're born, we're born this way. And we're walking away from God. And unless something happens to change our direction, that is where we are heading. That's our ultimate place is Destruction away from God. But when Jesus invades our lives, then everything changes. All of a sudden, we have this inheritance that we read about in 1 Peter 1. I've thought about this over and over and over. Inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Imperishable. It can never be taken away. It's undefiled, not touched by sin. Unfading. It never gets old. It just gets... If, I don't know if heaven, you, things get better and better if you're just always at that state. But it never goes away. An incredible relationship with Jesus and, the, and, 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 and life when you're perfect. We're not perfect because we've reached it. We're perfect because Jesus made us perfect. And if we live in Him, that's where we are in heaven. But... Those who are not following Jesus, they're not trusting Jesus, are heading for destruction unless something happens to change them. Furthermore, today's text has made it painfully clear that those 
who disobey have made their own choice. They've chosen. They stumbled over the rock of offense. They, they, Jesus, the cornerstone is, is there, but they don't see him as that. They don't see him as an important stone. They say, ah, just get, I don't want to, I don't, don't, look, this is the, don't you see the temple? This is where we worship God. They were offended at the message of Jesus. And Romans 1, and this is not, I don't like this. It's just true. I, I'm not mad with God for this. He can be anything He wants to be. He can be who He wants to be. But Romans 1 tells us that even those who have not heard the gospel, they've never even heard the name Jesus, they've made their choice. And they're walking away from God. And look, if you try to understand Scripture with an enlightenment mentality, with an American mentality, and with a worldwide sense of fairness, you're going to have a tough time. Look, just let God be who He is. But even though we're told that God is sovereign, and God is the one doing the choosing. We'll come to that a little bit more. We're also told that these people make their choice. And nobody comes to Jesus. Look, if you're here this morning and this is, and you don't know Christ and this is making any sense at all, and you're putting two and two together and you're saying, now, wait a minute. I've never asked Jesus to be my Savior. I've never confessed my sin to Him, repented of my sin, and said, I'm, I'm going to follow you as Lord of my life. If you're sitting here thinking, well, now wonder if I'm one of those who is chosen or not. Don't worry about that. You just make the call. If if God is on your heart saying, I want you to listen to this and I want you to act on this. He's calling you. That's the way it happens. You don't have to worry about that. And you don't have to worry about going into any of this stuff when you're witnessing to somebody. But it's very important to understand it. Just a few minutes if I'll get back to the notes and stay with we can say for certain from all of Scripture that those who reject Jesus are destined for eternal condemnation. And again, you have to do a lot, a lot, a lot of explaining. You have to do a lot of shifting and, and, and adjusting of Scripture to make it any other way. It's just the truth is that those who reject Jesus are bound for eternal condemnation. And, and, and we can say from this verse that it is not God's plan for all to be saved in the end. We want it to be. Well, it, you know, except for that jerk that broke up with me last week. You know, everybody else, though, I, I want him to get there eventually. Well, Hitler, okay, throw him out too. But, you know, most everybody... But see, that's the thing. We don't get to judge. We don't get to say what's fair and what's not fair. We need to, we need to leave that to God. But the fact that it's not God's plan for all people to be saved is one of the reasons that it's so urgent to share the gospel. Although logically, again, in our, in our enlightenment kind of understanding where everything must be figured out. We want to say, wait a minute, this seems a bit contradictory, but let's think about it. If God is responsible for people being saved, we absolutely must pray because we can't do anything about it. It's one of the motivations to pray, God, turn this person's heart. And here's the deal. You, if you say, well, isn't it already planned out ahead of time? I know this. I've seen this over the years increasingly. 
There are lots of times in my life where God has led me to pray about something very specifically, and it's come to pass. And you know what? It ain't me. I ain't a great prayer. That, In fact, that's my weakest spiritual discipline because I'm ADHD and in any, lots of, you can put about 10 Ds in my, in my profile, personality profile. And it's difficult for me to pray. So I'm not the one that's, you know, got this deep, rich prayer life and God responds to his child. No, it's just the way he's worked it. And when he puts a burden on your heart to pray for somebody, you better pray. It's, it's his plan. It's the way his plan all works together. Look, I, I'm in a place in my life where, you know, my wife died last year and there are just so many things going in so many directions and, 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 and I've quit trying to figure God out and it's a great place to be. You know, well, I know God did this in my life for this. Come on. Well, maybe so. But, you know, if we have to figure it out, then we need to be God, don't we? He doesn't want us to be. He just wants us to trust Him and obey Him. And see, the more we know about who we are in Jesus, the more motivated we're going to be to trust Him. But there's an urgency because people are not saved. And, and if we took the time to examine the grammar, here comes the balance. Here comes the balance in this. We would see a hint that Peter, Peter very well may be saying, those who are presently not believing the gospel may yet trust Jesus. That comes into play in verse 12 also. All of this comes together. The way he is stating this. This is happening. This is happening now. But it's not absolute that it's the way that it's going to end up. Well, that answer might not satisfy you, but we're really not through yet. I, let's keep considering the question as undoubtedly Peter did in the very next words that he wrote. In verse 9, Peter states that his readers have not stumbled over Jesus, but rather they have embraced him. And thus they are a chosen race. Okay, these people stumbled, but not you. You've embraced Jesus and you are a chosen race. Now, when you hear that term chosen race, who do you think about? Who are God's chosen people? Jews. That's who we think about. God's chosen people are the Jews. Old Testament is clear about that. But now, Peter says, you, the church, constitute God's chosen people. You know, it's interesting to me that that nobody has trouble saying that in the Old Testament it's clear. God chose Israel, and He didn't choose these other nations. And in fact, He often brought judgment on anybody that messed with Israel. See, you, you can't do that. These are my people. You mess with my people, I mess with you. And he chose them. It's just, we accept that. Not in these days. When it comes to individuals worldwide, those who follow Jesus, it's, it's no longer God who does the choosing, but it's I who do the choosing. I mean, we got no problem saying that he chose Israel, but we got a problem saying that he chose this one and he didn't choose that one. Now, I, I, and I understand why. I know why. Because you've got loved ones who don't know Jesus. And if God's already made up his mind about who gets in and who doesn't, and that's our the way we look at it. It's our human finite minds. It's the it's the best we can do. If if it's up to God, he may have already decided, so I can't believe that. So you need to do this. You need to do this. Look. We can't do anything about anybody else's salvation. Only God can do that. He's the one that draws people. He, he brings them to, 
God the Father brings them, draws them to Jesus. We need to pray. Now, He uses us as we're getting ready to see. And what we do and how we live our lives is crucial in this whole process. But Peter said, when you belong to Jesus, you are part of a chosen race. The New Testament is replete with the testimony of God's sovereign choice of us to be His children. Now get past, just for a moment, get past the implications of that for other people. And just in your heart and mind think, God chose me. He chose me. We ought to be rejoicing with that, not trying to explain it away. We're not only a chosen race, but a royal priesthood and a holy nation, both of which are descriptions of Israel in in Exodus 19.6. God has chosen us to represent Him with holy lives. How tragic is it to realize that there is so little difference between people in the church and the people in the world when they do the surveys about drug and alcohol abuse, marriage and divorce and suicide and just all kinds of problems. The difference is, is, is extremely little. I mean, how sad is it to think that we're just not any different than them out there? Are we? It, 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 it creates in us, a, I think, a need to examine ourselves. I mean, if we're a chosen race, a holy nation, a people of God's own belong, that belong to God, how can we live the same way those who say, I ain't no big deal to me? How can we live the same way? It ought to cause us to examine our relationship with God. Now, if you're here, and especially, look, the younger you are, the di- more difficult some struggles are. You're struggling with a particular sin. And 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 um, and you just think, how can I be a Christian? Look, it's actually a good sign if you're struggling with this. When you don't struggle, that's when I'm concerned. When you're just, when you fail and you go fall on your face and oh God please forgive me that's a good sign but when we just kind of show up and we play at it and we live the same way everybody else lives we just know a little Bible we know a little of this or that we've been baptized maybe maybe that'll help how is that representing a chosen race a royal priesthood it's just not the way it's supposed to be God called us to be His own people. He called us to be His own people. Why? So that His excellencies might shine through us in a dark world. Now, verse 10 shows by using a strong allusion to the book of Hosea that God's covenant is with the church just as it had been with Israel. In Hosea, God rejected Israel because of sin, but mercifully welcomed those back who had repented of their sin. And now Peter says, You, you as a church, Gentiles and Jews together, you are who were far from God, have received His mercy and brought into His family through Jesus. You had no name, but now you bear my name. I don't think we realize what, how significant that was to Gentiles back in the day. I mean, we think America, it, it's our God-given right. We're born with this right to be a Christian. You know, but man, it was a big deal for Gentiles to be brought into the family of God. Such knowledge ought to overwhelm us. 
It ought to change the way we live in the same way that it would change our behavior if we knew that we were really royalty of a, of a nation in Africa or in Europe. Peter certainly thought so. I mean, in verses 11 to 12, he says in so many words, You belong to Jesus, the cornerstone, and thus you are God's people. Now, do something about it. Live like the person God has called you to be. Live who you are. Let's read those verses again. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. We're once again reminded that while we enjoy the phenomenal blessings of belonging to the Lord, we are not yet home. I mean, we're in a, in a land, we're sojourners and exiles in a land where, where the inhabitants, the local inhabitants are not friendly to us. You see, we've been called to maintain our customs and our culture from another place. And you know, when you come to a new country, you need to fit in as best you can. Well, we can't fit in because we don't belong. We don't belong. Now, we may be very gracious and kind to the people, and we may do our best not to offend people, but they don't like it when we don't fit in. And our difficulties are twofold. First of all, those who don't belong to Jesus want to bring us into their circle of influence. Say, look, man, you, you look, you live here now. you got to live that way. you just got to be like us. See, here's the problem. Our lives convict them because their lives aren't anywhere close. And, and if Jesus is coming through us, He's shining through us, they don't like the light. I mean, this is a dark world and they're saying, hey, hey cut that light off. Come, come on and do this. Now, the temptation, because we have this flesh in us and there, we, we can sometimes succumb to the passions of the flesh, it's just easier. It's easier to to risk their disapproval, in fact, maybe even their persecution. And so, yeah, okay, well, I guess it's not that big of a deal to do this. And so we end up looking just like the world. That's not who we're designed to be. We're designed to show forth the excellencies of Him who has called us to be His children. That's one problem. Here's the second one. That is, if we refuse to join in with them in their activities then if they can't get you to join them, they may persecute you. They may actually accuse you of being an evildoer. I, I, I just don't think it's right to be as judgmental as you are. Who are you to say, this is the only way? Well, who, who died and left you in charge? What makes you the final arbiter of right and wrong? The end result may be that you suffer one way or another at the hands of those who don't love Jesus. That reality, in fact, repeatedly finds its way into Peter's thoughts during this letter. But there is encouragement in verse 12 to live in the manner that we are called to live, to be who God made us to be. The last part of this verse about the day of visitation could mean one of two things. Let me, uh, let me just read that. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What does that day of visitation mean? 
Some people think it's talking about the day of judgment. That when, when Jesus comes back and all wrongs are made right, they'll see that we were actually right about Jesus and they'll glorify God. It's more likely, that's a possibility, but it's more likely that, that he's saying this will happen, God will be glorified on the day that he comes to visit. And, and he's probably talking about this. And so, again, this is the balance to all that stuff about chosen. And I know that's tough language for some of you. And look, I promise you, not only was I completely away from that many, many years ago, when I came here, I wasn't as where I am right now. But here's the balance. This is what he's saying. Our lives make a difference in God's sovereign plan. When they see Jesus shining through us, they're attracted. And the day of visitation is very likely the day of their conversion. They've watched us as we suffer persecution. And they're attracted to Jesus. My goodness. In fact, as difficult as this is, People are very drawn to Jesus when they see people suffering for their faith. Tertullian, second century bishop in Rome, said, the, the, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church because the more they kill, the more people say, I don't know what that is, but I want it. To die like, to die for that belief and to die as they have died. That's what I want. And when people see Jesus in us, they're attracted. And you know what? They choose to believe. So we're right back where we started with Jesus. That's what this whole passage has been about. We're a living stone that's connected to the cornerstone. He's fashioned us in a specific way to be in this spiritual building, this temple that's made not with hands. We're living stones connected to the cornerstone. And when people see Jesus in us, loving each other like we talked about a couple of weeks ago, living pure lives that reflect and radiate His glory, then they want in. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it breaks my heart to think about Anybody uh, taking offense at my word and, 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 and taking offense at what I perceive to be the truth. That's, Lord, please, unite us. Don't divide us over what can be a difficult doctrine, especially if you're just thinking it through and just beginning to get into it a, of election and being chosen and being your people. Well, Lord, regardless of where we stand on that position, just Thrill our hearts with the knowledge that you chose us. And we know way more than enough to realize it wasn't because of anything we'd done. But you loved us and you drew us to yourself. You're God and we let you be God. But Lord, the knowledge of who we are ought to make a difference in our lives. May it be. God just just changes. Make us more like Jesus. And may others see and be drawn. And Lord, it's so tempting for us when someone does see Jesus in us to begin to lose perspective and say, well, yeah, I was pretty... No. 
It's all about Him. Make it the reality of our lives. It's in the name of our precious, glorious Savior, the cornerstone, Jesus, that we pray. Amen. Would you please stand for the benediction?